St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. It is Tuesday, May 12, 2020. On today's episode, we have Kathy Diamond, who will be doing her morning book review. She'll be speaking about the Michael Ondaatje book called Warlight. Uh, it takes place in uh, London uh, a few months after the end of the Second World War. And this is how the book starts. In 1945, our parents went away and left us in the care of two men who may have been criminals. And then we have Nick Burgess, who will be performing again. This will be the fifth and final of the recordings we brought to you over the course of the last uh, week or so. Um, and Nick will be singing uh, some more show tunes. Close my eyes to back the curtain to see for certain what I thought I afternoon everyone. My name is Kathy Diamond and for the past 38 years, wow that's a long time, I have been leading the Eleanor London Cote St. Luke Public Library's Morning Book Club which used to meet one Monday morning a month in the library to talk about a chosen book. Unfortunately since this past March we have not been able to meet in person in the library. But thanks to this Cote St. Luke initiative and modern technology, I can now bring you a taste of the book that was scheduled for the month of May. The title of the book is Warlight by Michael Ondaatje. I'd like to start this afternoon by telling you a bit about the author. Mr. Ondaatje is one of Canada's best known and internationally respected writers. His name comes to mind along with those of Margaret Atwood and Alice Munro as probably the top three Canadian writers on the international literary map. Mr. Ondaatje was born in September 1943 in what was then called Ceylon, now called Sri Lanka. He was born into a family of Dutch, Tamil, Sinhalese, Portuguese origin. His parents separated when he was an infant and he lived with relatives until 1954 when he joined his mother in England. He began his secondary studies, secondary school studies in London, and then he continued here in Canada at Bishop's College School and Bishop's University in Lenoxville after emigrating to Quebec in 1962. He then moved to Toronto where he continued his university studies at the U of T and at Queen's University. He began his teaching career at the University of Western Ontario, and in 1970, he settled in Toronto, where he's been living mainly ever since, 
and he began his teaching career teaching English literature in Toronto at York University, where he spent a number of years. He and his wife, Linda Spaulding, who is also an academic and an author, together they edit a literary journal called Brick. Although he is best known as a novelist, Mr. Ondaatje's work also encompasses the genres of memoir, poetry, and film. He has won many awards, including the Booker Prize for his novel, The English Patient, in 1992. And actually, this novel, Warlight, was long listed for the 2018, the year that this book was published, um, for the 2018 Booker, Man, Man Booker Prize, as it's now known. The English Patient, if you remember, was adapted into a motion picture and won an Academy Award for Best Motion Picture. Other books of his, which you may have read or you may be familiar with, include, over the years, and he's had quite a long writing career, Anil's Ghost, which won the Giller Prize in the year 2000, In the Skin of a Lion, Divisidero, which won the Governor General's Award in 2007, as well as a semi-fictional memoir of his childhood in Ceylon entitled Running in the Family. Mr. Ondaatje is an officer of the Order of Canada, which he received in 1988, and he has contributed greatly to supporting small independent presses in this country, something that he has always been passionate about. Mr. Ondaatje and his wife have two children. His brother, Christopher Ondaatje, is also an author, as well as a well-known philanthropist and businessman. So there you have a little bit of background about the author of Warlight. His latest novel was published, as I said, in 2018, and it opens in the year 1945. So the setting is post-war London. It features a pair of young siblings named Nathaniel and Rachel, who have been abandoned, it seems, by their parents and left in the care of a range of colorful characters. These characters have odd names, such as the Moth, the Darter, and Marsh Felon. The setting of the story is on the streets and the rivers of post-war London, a London only months after the end of the Second World War, still reeling from the Blitz and from the years of war and deprivation. I'd like to read to you now from the opening pages of the book to give those of you who have not read any of Ondaatje's work or who have not read this book a taste of his writing, which as always, and those of you who've read previous works of his will remember the writing from The English Patient, from The Cat's Table, as having a haunting and mysterious 
and reflective quality about it. So I'm going to read from the opening of the book, and the book is divided into two parts. You have part one and part two, and part one is called A Table Full of Strangers. We were living on a street and it in London this way. called Ruvini Gardens, and one morning, either our mother or our father suggested that after breakfast, the family have a talk, and they told us that they would be leaving us and going to Singapore for a year. Not too long, they said, but it would not be a brief trip either. We would, of course, be well cared for in their absence. I remember our father was sitting on one of those uncomfortable iron garden chairs as he broke the news, while our mother, in a summer dress just behind his shoulder, watched how we responded. After a while, she took my sister Rachel's hand and held it against her waist as if she could give it warmth. Neither Rachel nor I said a word. We stared at our father, who was expanding on the details of their flight on the new Avro Tudor One a descendant of the Lancaster bomber, which could cruise at more than 300 miles an hour. They would have to land and change planes at least twice before arriving at their destination. He explained that he had been promoted to take over the Unilever office in Asia, a step up in his career. It would be good for all of us. He spoke seriously, and our mother turned away at some point to look at her August garden. So now we know the setting, 1945, London, and it's August. After my father had finished talking, seeing that I was confused, she came over to me and ran her fingers like a comb through my hair. I was 14 at the time and Rachel nearly 16 and they told us that we would be looked after in the holidays by a guardian as our mother called him. They referred to him as a colleague. We had already met him. We used to call him the moth, a name we had invented. Ours was a family with a habit for nicknames which meant it was also a family of disguises. Rachel had already told me she suspected he worked as a criminal. The arrangement appeared strange, but life was still haphazard and confusing during that period after the war. So what had been suggested did not feel unusual. We accepted the decision, as children do, and the moth, who had recently become our third floor lodger, a humble man, large but moth-like in his shy movements, was about to be the solution. Our parents must have assumed he was reliable, 
As to whether the moth's criminality was evident to them, we were not sure. I suppose there had once been an attempt to make us a tightly knit family. Now and then, my father let me accompany him to the Unilever offices, which were deserted during weekends and bank holidays. And while he was busy, I'd wander through what seemed an abandoned world on the 12th floor of the building. I discovered all the office drawers were locked. There was nothing in the waste paper baskets, no pictures on the walls, although one wall in his office held a large relief map depicting the company's foreign locations, Mombasa, the Cocos Islands, Indonesia, and nearer to home, Trieste, Heliopolis, Benghazi, Alexandria, cities that cordoned off the Mediterranean. Locations, I assumed, were under my father's authority. Here was where they booked holds on the hundreds of ships that traveled back and forth to the east. The lights on the map that identified these cities and ports were unlit during the weekends, in darkness, much like those far outposts. And there's going to be a lot of talk of light and of darkness. And remember that the title of the book is War Light. What exactly does War Light mean? We'll figure that out. At the last moment, continues the book, it was decided that our mother would remain behind for the final weeks of the summer to oversee the arrangements for the lodger's care over us and ready us for our new boarding schools. On the Saturday before he flew alone towards that distant world, I accompanied my father once more to his office. He had suggested a long walk since, he said, for the next few days his body would be humbled on a plane. So we caught a bus to the Natural History Museum, then walked up through Hyde Park into Mayfair. He was unusually eager and cheerful, singing the lines, homespun collars, homespun hearts, wear to rags in foreign parts, repeating these lines again and again, almost jauntily, as if this was an essential rule. What did it mean, I wondered. I remember we needed several keys to get into the building where the office he worked in took up that whole top floor. I stood in front of the large map, still unlit, memorizing the cities that he would fly over during the next few nights. Even then, I loved maps. He came up behind me and switched on the lights so the mountains on the relief map cast shadows, though now it was not the lights I noticed so much as the harbors lit up in pale blue, as well as the great stretches of unlit earth. It was no longer a fully revealed perspective, and I suspect that Rachel and I must have watched 
our parents' marriage with a similar flawed awareness. They had rarely spoken to us about their lives. We were used to partial stories. Our father had been involved in the last stages of the earlier war, and I don't think he felt he really belonged to us. As for their departure, it was accepted that she had to go with him. There was no way, we thought, that she could exist apart from him. She was his wife. There would be less calamity, less collapse of the family if we were left behind as opposed to her remaining to look after us. And as they explained, we could not suddenly leave the schools into which we had been admitted with so much difficulty. Before his departure, we all embraced our father in a huddle, the moth having tactfully disappeared for the weekend. So we began a new life. And I am still uncertain whether the period that followed disfigured or energized my life. I was to lose the pattern and restraint of family habits during that time. And as a result, later on, there would be a hesitancy in me, as if I had too quickly exhausted my freedoms. In any case, I am now at an age where I can talk about it, of how we grew up protected by the arms of strangers. And it is like clarifying a fable about our parents, about Rachel and myself, and the moth, as well as the others who joined us later. And that's the excerpt that I'm going to, that I've read to you about that begins this wonderful book. The past never remains in the past, muses Nathaniel, our narrator, in this book, Michael Ondaatje's eighth novel, as Nathaniel tries to piece together fragments of information and memory about his childhood. And we are in familiar Ondaatje territory here. His very sensuous prose, his curious characters, the missing threads of his story, the instability of things. But which of these fragments has real significance? We don't know. Nathaniel's mother, it turns out, has revealed a few anecdotes about her own childhood. But whenever he, Nathaniel, our narrator, who's the young, who's young teenage boy at the beginning of the story, and in part two, he's in his late 20s, whenever Nathaniel and his sister try to recall what they know about his mother, the memories feel like the part of a fairy tale that we did not quite understand. And that's what this book has the feel of. Almost a slightly sinister, or are we imagining as such, fairy tale. And a lot has happened in this story. This is a mesmerizing tale, which, as he says here, begins in the summer of 1945, when Nathaniel's parents disappear, leaving him who's only 14, and his almost 16-year-old sister 
in grimy post-war London in the care of two men who may have been criminals. And it's such a wonderful opening sentence that just draws you in to the mystery of the story. Ostensibly, both parents are supposed to be going to Singapore for about a year for their father's new job. And it turns out, though, as they find his mother, their mother's steamer trunk buried in the basement, that his mother has, their mother has never actually left. So ostensibly, both parents were supposed to be going off to Singapore, but it turns out that that's not quite happened. Meanwhile, they are left in the company or under the guardianship of this third floor lodger called the Moth. And other men, strange men, appear. The two main characters, um, the next other main character other than Walter, his real name is Walter the Moth, is the Pimlico Darter, who is an ex-welterweight boxer. And the two of them fill the house with bizarre visitors. So the fairy tale gets stranger. As Nathaniel, our narrator, reassesses what happened, he reflects. The arrangement appeared strange, but remember, life was still haphazard and confusing during that period after the war. Blackouts, unlit gray buildings, pools of lamplight, and remember this this title, the, the title is War Light, whatever War Light is supposed to be, but lighting is a very big part of the story. This London is a city of secrets. And then, as I said, the children find their mother's steamer trunk, which they had watched her pack, and she made a show of packing the steamer trunk with everything that she was going to need in Singapore, and they realize that she really hasn't gone. And this discovery changes everything. Nathaniel's adventures continue. He leaves school. He accompanies the darter on mysterious canal journeys on a barge. He is bewitched by a young waitress with a green ribbon in her hair. But underneath this narrative, throbbing there underneath the narrative, both for Nathaniel, the narrator of the story, and we, the readers, are these questions about his mother, Rose. What was going on here? She's, there are obviously secrets that Nathaniel knows nothing about, and of course we, the readers, don't know anything about until Nathaniel finds out and decides to tell us. So Nat, gradually, the choices that his mother has made and the mystery she generates overshadow Nathaniel's life. Nathaniel's ties with his sister, Rachel Lucen. Rachel is very angry and very hurt, angry and hurt at her mother for abandoning them. And strange adults appear in Nathaniel's life. One of them is a woman by the name of Olive Lawrence, a geographer and ethnographer, as she explains to the teenagers. And as Nathaniel watches this woman, one of the characters who appears in their house, examining her very carefully as she's waiting for this other character, the darter, only later does the, re the reader realize, as Nathaniel realizes, that just as he is watching all these characters, including Olive, so is Olive scrutinizing him. Why is she watching him so carefully? One of the many oddities or mysteries of this story. 
She takes Rachel and Nathaniel for a walk one night. Everything and a lot is done at night in the shadows, in the strange lighting. And she says to the children, she says to the adolescents, your own story is just one story among many and perhaps not the important one. The self is not the principal thing, whatever that is supposed to mean. And that is what part one of the book is about. Part two takes place about 10 years later. The bewildering adolescence ends abruptly halfway through the book. And in part two, Nathaniel is 28 years old and living now, it's not London anymore, this is years later, he's living in the Suffolk village in which his mother grew up. As opposed to the war-lit first part of the book, the dimly lit London, this now, this Suffolk village, is part of a light-filled open country, writes Mr. Ondaatje. But here we have Nathaniel, now years later, trying to piece together both his own life and his mother's death. In earlier years, he had tried to recreate the voyages along the dark waterways that he took with that character called the Darter. And Nathaniel writes, I felt I too had disappeared. I had lost my youth. Nathaniel had been given a job when we meet him in part two. He's working in a nameless department of the British Foreign Office. And what did this job entail? Reviewing archives about intelligence work. And that makes sense here because there's all this mystery, there's all this secretiveness, and we get the feeling that perhaps we're reading a spy story here. And it turns out that yes, that's what we are reading. So Nathaniel's job now is reviewing archives about intelligence work during the war and the post-war years. And slowly, his mother Rose's story has begun to emerge. Her code name in the shadows of post-war espionage in Italy and Yugoslavia was Viola, he finds out. Betrayal, torture, and revenge were part of her life while she was away from her children. And as Rachel, Nathaniel's sister, snapped at him during a brief late encounter, they were both damaged by their mother's behavior. Nathaniel's story merges into his mother's. At times, it seems that Rose herself is the narrator, Or is this Nathaniel's voice as he tries to piece together the fragments of the story, the fragments of his memories? Some of the mysteries remain unsolved. Some characters, such as the children's father, are lost. Others turn out to be far more significant than first imagined. Rose, his mother, is unsettling in her fierce determination to remain unreadable, inscrutable, keeping her secrets. The morality of war undercuts childhood assumptions. 
The world that Ondaatje has created in this book is intensely mid-century English, abundant with details of old-fashioned arts such as thatching and beekeeping and arcane details about things like greyhound racing. Scenes depicted in the earlier pages are drenched in the shadowed lighting and elliptical dialogue of which bring to mind the classical black and white British films such as The Brief Encounter as Brief Encounter or The Third Man. Maps are crucial to the story. The as Nathaniel has told us right at the beginning, he's always had a fashion, fascination with maps. The younger Nathaniel tries to anchor his world with hand-drawn maps of his neighborhood. The older Nathaniel explains his mother's post-war service as a secret agent thanks to a flimsy tracing of contour lines. In fact, the epigraph of the book, which turns out to be a line by French filmmaker Robert Bresson, although it's not said at the beginning of the book, but the epigraph is this line by filmmaker Robert Bresson that says, most of the great battles are fought in the creases of topographical maps. That is the, on the book's dedication page. And that, this, these battles that are fought in the creases of maps and other things are, this is the literary domain of Michael um, Ondaatje, the author of this book. Every sentence that Ondaatje writes is elegant, yet weighty with significance. This is the writing that Michael Ondaatje has been, has, has come to be known for and that has won him so many literary prizes. There are some loose ends and some baffling moments of tension in the story. And yet, after all, when you come to the end of the book, underneath the uncertainty, there is a cohesion that makes this one of Ondaatje's most successful and satisfying novels. In the book Warlight, all is illuminated, one might say, at first dimly in the first part of the book, and then more starkly, but always brilliantly, as the reviewer in the Washington Post summed up Mr. Ondaatje's latest work. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope that we will be able to share another book this com- in the coming months, or other books in the coming months, whether it will be on the radio or eventually, hopefully at some point, in person. Thank you and have a safe and lovely day. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Welcome back to Broadway Happy Hour. I'm so glad you're all here with me tonight. Garrett, a uh, Helen, a uh, Helen Garrett. That's Parker's mom, Helen in Boston. I've got people from Boston who tune in each week, and I'm so glad that they do. Parker, who's a brilliant musician, who I work with often. If you know Parker Burt, fabulous percussionist and drummer, 
And his parents watch from Boston. So Boston, yay! And they say, can we do some Chicago? All that jazz. I mean, of course, right? This is for you, Holly. Fred, move along. She knew that she was doing wrong. Then describe it. He 
tiger. He is strength and she had none. Yeah, we fought and fought like a. Oh, yes, so oh, yes, so oh, yes, we fought, oh, yes, we fought, oh, yes, we fought, we fought, the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun. Oh, yes, we fought, we fought, the gun, fought, the gun. Oh, yes, so oh, yes, so oh, yes, we fought, oh, yes, we fought, oh, yes, we fought, we fought, the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun. Oh, yes, we fought, we fought, the gun, fought, the gun. Understandable, understandable. Yes, it's perfectly understandable, comprehensible, comprehensible. Not a bit reprehensible. It's indefensible. How you feeling? Very frightened. Are you sorry? Are you kidding? What's your statement? All it says, don't let you two jump the track. I give my life to bring them back. Stay away from Chas and the car and the men who play for fun. Now what? That's the ball that came upon me when we both reached for the gun. Understandable, understandable. Yes, it's perfectly understandable, comprehensible, comprehensible. So this is Any Dream Will Do from Joseph. And this goes out to Laura Lisbeth, Alanis, and Alanis Cruz. I guess those are two people. Yay. So, Any Dream Will Do from Joseph. Any dream will do. 
goes out to Diane Dupuis and to Tracy Bronstein and this is for good merci beaucoup tout le monde uh, d'être uh, à l'écoute ce soir et passer du bon temps avec moi so here we go this is for good from Wicked Well, maybe that 
Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.